Heavenly Father, we ask that you would aid us this morning in illuminating to us the Spirit of God's power to demonstrate your word and its meaning. We pray, O Lord, that you would utilize the Spirit to strengthen us, that we might understand what this text is speaking about, that we may apply it rightly to our heart, to our soul, to our mind, that we might love you with a whole heart. We ask, God, that you would aid us to understand this, help us to see Christ clearly in it. And we ask that you would be in our midst as we study your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's read Genesis 22.20 through 23.20, which is the whole chapter of 23. Now, it came to pass... After these things, that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, who is his firstborn, Boaz's brother, Kemuel, the father of Amram, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Reuma, also bore Teba, Gaham, Sehash, and Maacah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. But Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price his property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth. All who entered the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me, I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, if you will give it, please hear me, I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephraim answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the, name, in the hearing of the sons of Heth. Four hundred shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it. And all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in at the gate of the city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth, as property for a burial place. 
Now, we find here that there is a shift going on in the way that Moses has set up this particular book. There is a shifting from Terah now to Abraham to Isaac. There is a transition to show that Abraham's patriarchal headship now belongs to Isaac. This is running from chapter 22, 20, where we started, all the way through chapter 25 and verse 11. The family of Abraham is seen in chapter 20, 20 to 24, and in 25, 1 through 7. And then we see him finally die. So there is a transition that's going on here. They want us to see that the lineage is moving from Terah to Abraham, now to Isaac, ultimately, Abraham and his wife are ultimately going to die. And Isaac's line will continue. So we find in chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, the death of Sarah. She lived 127 years and died in Hebron, about 800 miles from her. And it said that Abraham wept for her. It is to be noted, just as a side note, that not enough people weep at funerals. Abraham loved his wife and he wept for her. And so as a result of seeing her dead, he wanted to bury her and remove her out of his sight. There are then, in chapter 23, 3 through 18, three dialogues that come up. Abraham left Sarah, his dead, and approached the sons of Heth. So from verses 3 to 6, we find the first dialogue. Then we find a second dialogue from 7 to 11. And then a third from 12 to 16. It's set up very particular. Abraham approaches the sons of Heth. He's a foreigner who needs to bury his dead. And... It's strange for him to actually do this because he actually should have taken her back home and buried her in the land of Ur. But that would have gone against the promises of God. That would have gone against the commands of God. The sons of Heth want him to choose a burial place free of charge. The choicest. They tell him, choose the choicest of the land, the best choice, the best pick. Whatever you want, we'll give it to you. Then we go in to the second dialogue from verses 7 to 11. He'd like to acquire the site of Machpelah, which is owned by somebody. Ephron comes to him who owns this land, and he tells him, I will give it to you. But Abraham doesn't want to accept this. He wants to buy it. And so a common barter begins. They're going to barter now for the land. Ephron did not want to give it away. It was the regular custom of the day to want to place somebody into their indebtedness by giving something away. But he knew that Abraham would then offer him money for it. He didn't want to sell it. If Abraham had not paid for it, he would have owed Ephron something else. That was just commonly known. So Abraham didn't want to do that. He didn't want to be indebted to Ephron for anything. So the third dialogue follows in 12 to 16 the money that's used for the field. Now you expect something to actually happen here, but it doesn't. 
400 shekels of silver we used to pay for the field, which is an exceedingly excessive amount of money. The, the cave was not worth that at all. Abraham, being wealthy, had absolutely no problem coming up with 400 shekels of silver to bury his wife. Ephron basically took him for a ride with 400 shekels of silver, expecting Abraham to bargain with him. But instead, he waited out according to the currency of the merchants, and the deal is made, and Abraham pays him the money before all of the witnesses that are there. So there's a testimony of the transaction and the description. And then the text in 23, 19 to 20 says that Abraham buries his wife in the cave. Abraham also knew, however, as we have commentary in the book of Hebrews, that he knew this wasn't the end. That death was not the end. He was actually already and acting on the promises that God had given to him, that the land would be his. But Abraham was not simply looking for a land or a city that was made with hands. As Hebrews tells us, he was looking for a city made without hands, in which he knew Sarah was already now a part of. In looking at, then, this particular passage, there are a few things to keep in mind. And it all surrounds the manner in which Abraham thought about what he was doing before God. He was keeping to the godly path because he lived in the now and not yet of God's promises. And we'll talk about both of those things. Let's first talk about keeping to the godly path. If it was customary for Abraham to go back to his homeland to bury his family members, why didn't he not do this? The family was still there. We have the report of Nahor and his house growing exceedingly abundant in that land. But if Abraham would have gone back, he would have broken covenant with God. Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house. Genesis 12.1 Abraham did not belong there. He belonged in the servant of God. The covenant in Genesis 15 and then ratified in 17, Abraham received the promise of God and had vowed there along with God based in this unilateral covenant that God placed upon him that he was to do what God and he agreed upon even though God had placed it upon him or like the animals that were cut so should be done to him. So he could not break his vow. He had to follow and walk blamelessly before God as God so instructed him. Abraham continued to stay on the path which God has placed him on, no matter where that path would lead. Unlike in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and Hopeful, who wanted an easier path to take, they jumped off the road of salvation onto this nice plain that felt comfortable to their feet and ultimately wound up in the castle of giant despair, Doubting Castle. Unlike Jonah, who thought his way was the better way, finding that it just placed him in all sorts of tribulation and trials and troubles. Abraham, instead, upheld the covenant that God had made with him and stayed on the path that God had placed him. 
and so acquired this field and buried his dead in a foreign land. The text specifically says he was a foreigner. And if one claims to be a Christian, he must stand upon the path God chooses for him. The psalmist, very simply, says he guides me down paths of righteousness for his namesake. Because it is all about God's glory and what God desires to receive out of the service of the Christian. The wise Christian says, I traverse the way of righteousness in the midst of paths of justice. Proverbs 8.20 He's wise to do so. He does not follow a path in which he chooses himself, for there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of death, as Proverbs 14.12 says. Rather, he follows the path that God gives him, wherever that may lead. Imagine if Abraham abandoned hope by going home instead of standing firm. The very prophecy of Genesis 15, 12 to 16, would not come to pass if Abraham would have left Canaan. And there would have been thus no ultimate bondage of the Israelites in Egypt. Thus, there would have been no deliverance from Egypt. Thus, there would not have been any Israel. Thus, there would not have been any David. Thus, there would not have been any, and so on. All the way through, up until where we have our Savior come. No doubt God worked great faith in Abraham to uphold him and to keep him steadfast. For, as the Scriptures tell us, he who began a good work in you shall complete it. But Christians must always endeavor to stay upon the path of all of God's biblical promises and anything they do if they are to enter the hope of glory. So that's the first simple instruction that we should keep to the path that God has set us on. Why did Abraham act this way? Well, he believed in the now and the not yet of God's promises. The theological idea of the now and not yet runs through all of the scriptures. Abraham had a small part of the land of promise. He owned it. In a small way, he had part of the promise fulfilled, only in part. Yet, we know that Abraham was looking for the city of God, not for a cave in Machpelah. God's promise was that the descendants of Abraham would possess the land of Canaan, and so we find a small taste of that fulfillment in the promise. It was Abraham's now, it was not Ephron's. He didn't owe anything to a pagan. He owned it outright. And Ephron would undoubtedly have called on Abraham if he had simply given him the land outrightly. And Abraham would have taken it that way. And he would have been indebted to Ephron who would have owned the land. But instead now Abraham does. He owned it completely. Little as he had. But it was the now and not yet. He had a little piece of what the ultimate fulfillment would be. And the ultimate fulfillment is not a plot of land to plant vegetables and to bury people in caves. The ultimate fulfillment would have been heaven. God promising the city made without hands to him, giving him a taste of God's provision with this land in the here and now. If Christians understood the concept of the now and not yet, their lives 
would be radically different because they would be seeing really the big picture of what's going on. They would be able to say along with Abraham, I am a sojourner and a foreigner here in this world. That's why Peter beckons us this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Which is why in the next chapter, Peter will then call these Christians who he's writing to, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. They are like Father Abraham. Sojourners and pilgrims who are looking for the not yet, though they live in the promises of the now. This is not the Christian's home. Which is why it's somewhat horrible for people to say, I don't want to go to heaven right now. I'm having too much fun here on earth. We have to have our mind and our hearts set on the heavenly prize and having too much fun here on earth. That's really spoken from the carnal mind, not one which holds Christ in very high regard. Christians should see themselves as ready to reach the not yet as soon as they can. They should be always looking for the city not made with hands, which is why when the disciples asked Jesus how they should pray, one of the things that they prayed was, Thy kingdom come, right in the beginning. Praying that God's kingdom would come has a twofold significance, not only for the not yet, but if God tarries, that God would expand his kingdom here now. But there's all these spiritual realities that the Christian should see that point to that celestial city which we should all be moving towards. That is the whole point of the book of Pilgrim's Progress. They were on their way to the celestial city. They encountered many things along the way, but the goal was to get there. Evangelist asked Pilgrim, do you see that shining light? And Pilgrim said, I think so. Evangelist continued, Keep your eyes fixed on that light and go directly to it. In the same way, we don't even have to use Pilgrim's Progress as an analogy in this way. The entire Bible points us to this, even from the very, very beginnings that we have with Abraham. Abraham was looking for a city not made with hands. True Christians who live in the now cannot wait to get to the not yet. This is heavenly citizenship not just simply earthly travail now. That is what keeps the Christian going. That is what keeps us motivated, knowing that we are a citizen of heaven, knowing that one day we will be there. Christians see the big picture, see that they're tenants here, doing the Lord's will here on earth, fulfilling the cause of Christ, and exemplifying their citizenship already. They should act thus, like they are in heaven. If a person was to go to France, they would see there that people act French. They would speak the French language, they would eat French food, they would live in cities which resemble French architecture, have French monuments to visit, etc. The French 
are French. Even when they come to visit us here, a foreign land to them, they have an accent. And the Americans say, hey, that man is French. That woman is French. I can tell. And those with a more trained eye may even be able to distinguish them by their clothes, maybe by the way that they dress with French clothes. So as the French person exhibits their nationality naturally without trying, so the Christian should exemplify his nationality as well in the same way, here and now, because he is a citizen of heaven. So people around them should be able to point, and the Christian should be noticeably different than those people in the world. Everything about the Christian should be noticeably different. The French can go to a number of countries and stand out as a Frenchman. The Christian is a Christian everywhere in the world, because in light of spiritual things, there are only two nationalities, the saved and the lost. And people always exemplify their citizenship, which is either a citizen of heaven or a citizen of hell. When your friends speak of you, do they say, oh yes, he is a godly man or woman, or do they say, what a wretched man this person is, or that person is, because of the testimony or lifestyle that they have. They should always be seeing a person above reproach. Hear, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us, they said of Abraham. They noticed. Are you a demonstration of a prince or princess of the king? Does the world look upon you and see that your citizenship is of heaven? For Christians who profess that they are princes of the king must have their lifestyle show forth the heavenly citizenship of the not yet just as Abraham did. Now, we show off what we will be always in the not yet. And we should, in thinking about these things and applying them to our life now, we should first never be shaken, even unto death, for Christ is our rock. How could we be shaken if Christ is our rock? Though your spouse, sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, friends, part from you and die as Sarah did for Abraham, probably the worst thing that ever happened to him, other than sending away his son Ishmael from him, that still did not sway him to do anything other than follow the promises of God. No matter what trial we might face, our citizenship is in heaven. We'll never be moved if that stays locked inside our mind, because our mind is constantly captivated with the death, resurrection, and present intercession of Christ, who is always for us. Thus, what or who, anything, nothing, could be against us. He is our foundation, and the rock upon which we stand. Hell itself may come before you, and it shall not prevail, as Jesus says, as sons and daughters of the King. Nothing should shake us in our faith. Nothing should move us from the steadfastness which we're bound in Christ. Thus, having Christ as our rock, our Savior, as our Lord, as our strong power in which we run to, is a blessed privilege. We're very much likened to the buoy that is on the water. 
fishermen go out to certain places where these buoys are seen on top of the water. They know, based on navigation, to find these particular buoys there. And I always wondered why the waves didn't blow these buoys around because they're always in the same spot. They don't get moved. That doesn't really make sense. Don't the currents take them away or move them around or move them to another place? Well, no. Even though they might get bashed around by the waves, what we don't see is that underneath the buoys, there's a chain. And the chain is linked to a spot on the ocean's floor, which is set on a foundation of concrete, which keeps the buoy exactly there so that they're able to navigate throughout the ocean. These buoys are always in their place. Now, they might get slapped around by the waves a bit, but they never, ever are moved. Our citizenship in the same way in heaven gives us the expressed right to say, nothing can shake me here on earth because I am heaven bound. I am all about the not yet, not just the now. So we have to keep our focus that way. Now and not yet must be part of our vocabulary. This means that we have to keep our eyes always locked on Christ. The worst of sins is blindness. When we're blinded by the world, we lose sight of Christ. And when we lose sight of Christ, we lose sight of our royal position in Christ, the King. And we forget our citizenship. And when we forget our citizenship, we are tortured by the world and adversity. Like Lot, who is vexed as Peter said, day in and day out by the world. Rather, as Colossians tells us, set your mind on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. A set driving force, the present active imperfect, to continue and always to do so. The French are captivated with their Frenchness. They can never be anything other than French if they're French. So the Christian must be naturally captivated by Christ. The Christian's mind is to be set and secure upon him and his work because just as Jesus said in John 15, 5, without me you can do nothing. Without Christ, being without Christ is to be separated from Christ. When you focus on something other than Christ, then Christ becomes blurred in such a manner, and using these large cameras when my father used to work in the newspapers, you had to have these pictures that were placed on these large glass windows that were then placed in front of a special camera that took pictures of pictures to create these special negatives that were put on, ultimately, these metal plates so that the plates could then be taken to the printing press and a large printing press would then print the newspaper. But in taking pictures of these pictures, any pictures that a photographer would have taken, you had to make sure that they were exceptionally clear and perfect when that picture was taken. They couldn't be blurry in any way. If they were blurry, they would be blurred in the paper, ultimately. Maybe think of it in this way. When someone is looking at the moon, and then they turn and they look in another direction. It's not that the moon has changed. It's that they have looked away from it. Just because they're not seeing the moon now does not mean the moon is not there. 
Rather, they are just looking at another place. Their vision of it is impaired. Their vision of it is gone because they are no longer looking that way, but rather another. Christ cannot be either blurry to us or our vision be impaired in seeing him. We have to take heed of mixing what we concentrate on and what we focus on between the world and the heavenly things. For everything that we must do must be done in the worthiness of the gospel of Christ, which the Christian has been called and chosen for. Thus, his eyes must always be focused on those spiritual things. Our entire lives should be engulfed in spiritual sight to Christ. And thus, we should count it a privilege to be citizens of heaven, both now and ultimately in the hope of the not yet that we have. Because citizenship is by appointment only. God has lavished upon you the mercy and the grace of the application of the Holy Spirit through the power of the cross, resurrection, and present intercession of Christ. In comparison to the people of the world who are lost, there are relatively few who have the privilege of being saved under the headship of the king in this way. Jesus, the king, says, many are called, but few are chosen. And that pushes us to be all the more worthy of the life which we have been called to. Do you think that your lives are exemplary before God? 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul says to Timothy, the pastor, Let no man despise your youth, but be thou an example of the believers, in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity, in all of these things, even be an example. When the devil comes before God, shouts up to heaven to accuse us, as he daily does, to try and ruin the name of the saints, does God immediately cut them off? As he said with Job, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Are we protected by God in the same way as what he said in Daniel, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. Imagine being found innocent before God. Or does God have to sit through a long list of accusations which the devil may bring up again? We have to live worthily as being one who is blood-bought. Living worthily does not ensue our justification. Rather, it simply demonstrates it. And thus, it is a very poor case for the lost person who doesn't know the righteousness of the king working in him and through him and for him. Rather, he is pressed to hold on to his own works and a a city that he builds of himself. The motions of the Spirit of God don't move him to do good works because he's not in grace. He's under condemnation. And every vile and wicked accusation which the devil brings against them, in God's court, there the accusations will stand and they will be right. And the Lord will agree with the devil that the person is deserving of judgment. And the devil then sees that person dragged off to hell. But if repentance is sought, these people would be like Joshua, the high priest, like the Christians, who in Zechariah 3.1 was accused by Satan to be dirty, defiled, unclean. And it was true that he was. But the Lord said to Satan, quote, 
The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, I see I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let him put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him. Thus... Christians are clothed anew with the robe of the righteousness of Christ, with his cross, his resurrection, with his holy duties. These are the new clothes. They are the passports that we need to gain citizenship into heaven. For before God, there are those who have citizenship in heaven who have been made clean by the blood of Christ. And there are also those who are aliens that are trying to get into his court. Rather, though, the Christian must be faithful, must stay upon the godly path in which God has placed him, must show off heavenly citizenship, must not forget that even though we live in the now, we look for the not yet, which always lies before us because it is the living hope that Peter so talked about, and which we should follow the will of Christ. Sometimes our walk is pitiful, Sometimes it is backslidden. Sometimes the devils themselves might ask, is this one saved or lost? But because we have the righteousness of Christ and his active and passive obedience for us, actively upholding the law and passively taking on the wrath of God as he hung on the cross, that has been imputed to us. Even as Romans had said, as we had read this morning, that blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Because blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And thus, because of Christ, we have these passports to heaven. Now we must act like Christians and demonstrate, as Abraham did, that he was on the path of God and that he was not going to waver from the right or to the left, that he was going to bury his wife in a foreign land because he was not looking for just a plot of land. He was looking for the city made without hands, the city of heaven. And thus we as Christians must stay upon that same path, looking even now for the not yet which will one day come, praying for it, living for it, and walking in that way. Let's pray together. (coughs) Mighty Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Abraham's faithfulness. We thank you that he is the father of our faith and we are able to look, to see, to acknowledge our desire to be much like him. We pray, O God, that you would grant to us aid and strength and help and more of your spirit, that as we walk readily before the king who is Christ, that we would walk one worthy of being a citizen of heaven. We ask, Lord, that you would consecrate us to this and give us the ability to give you great thanks for seeing your great providence in our life as you work your spirit within us to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus that we might truly be citizens of heaven in all that we do and we so pray these things in Jesus name Amen